0: and sisters who are struggling uh, with physical infirmities. We pray for your comfort for them, for healing in their bodies. Um, Lord, your plans for us include things like that. Suffering. Not only suffering from spiritual attacks, but suffering physically. And it is a reminder to us of the great joy that we have as believers of a The promise of a new body that will not experience those kinds of things. So we look forward to your coming and us receiving those glorified bodies that would be like yours. But we lift up our brothers and sisters during this time while we await your coming. Give them comfort and courage and strength and grace uh, for each encounter with it. And those who are suffering emotionally or even spiritually, we lift them up this morning too. Maybe some of us here are struggling with those things. So pray that your your, your worship this morning, our worship view has already been encouragement to them. We pray that as we spend time in your word, and consider how good you are to us, that that would lift them up all the more. So now we, we come to our time that we commit uh, in our service to open your book your good gift to us of the of the scriptures and we, we are thankful that it is your book and that it not only comes from you but it's been protected by you through the centuries so that when we open it and read it we can have confidence that we're hearing or reading what you have to say about life about yourself about us so thank you for the time that we have this morning to do that we pray this in Christ's great name. Amen. So you're expecting me to say, uh, turn in your Bibles to Romans 6. I'm not going to say that to you this morning. I'll become clear in a moment. So, think of some questions. How, how in the world can I live godly, in a godless world? I mean, is it really possible for me to consistently do what is right in the sight of God? Uh, Why is it that I struggle so much with doing what I know God wants me to do? Why is it that the the way I teach my children, let's say, uh, how to, to, to behave, I struggle with doing myself? Why is that even though I have a loving and godly wife, that there are times that I get so angry with her that I, I refuse to communicate to her. I give her the silent treatment. Why do I struggle so much with feelings of envy and bitterness with coworkers? Why, why do I want to ram into the person who cut me off in traffic? <laughs> why do I feel like I'm in a NASCAR race when I'm sitting at a stoplight next to someone else? Many more questions like those could be asked to describe the kind of conflict that all of us as, as Christians go through. And it is the conflict that plagues not only those who have mixed up priorities, and some Christians do, not only those who are just starting out in their spiritual journey as believers in the Lord Jesus. I mean, these kinds of questions are asked by those who have known the Lord for years and years those who have dedicated their lives to Christ, those who have claimed the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. It is the conflict that we read about, actually, throughout the scriptures, of godly men and women struggling to deal with the tendency to give in to temptation and sin. It was the struggle of Abraham and of Moses and Samuel and David and Solomon, and Elijah, and Jeremiah, and Peter, and James, and John, and, and yes, even the Apostle Paul. It's the struggle of the saint who is still inclined to sin. It is the conflict of the redeemed who still at times want to rebel. It is the struggle that you and I face on a regular basis, day in and day out. So, is there any answer to those kinds of questions? Is there a way to deal with the awful struggle that we all face as followers of Christ? Is there any way that we can have victory over these kinds of problems with temptation and sin? And the answer, praise God, is yes. There is a way to deal with the struggle. There is an, a, a victory over the struggle of dealing with temptation and sin. And the answer to those questions and the conflict that we've just been considering is found in the Word of God. And it is, it is dealt with in or referred to as the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification. And it is that specific doctrine that Paul writes about at length in chapters 6 through 8 of Romans. And so this sermon is kind of an introduction to the, what we're going to be covering next, large section in the book that we've been in for a while now. And if you've been here through this study of the letter so far, I would ask you to remember that, that up to this point, Paul has essentially covered two big major uh, doctrines. In the first major section of the letter, Paul showed that every person needs the righteousness of God revealed through the gospel because they are sinners and they are deserving of the wrath of God. And so the key term to remember for the first major section is condemnation. I'm sure you remember that now that I told you that. The second major section uh, to, to the letter, he explains how people get The righteousness of God. It's all about the righteousness of God. Why I need it, how I get it. And I get it from the gospel, by the way, which is where the righteousness of God is revealed. And salvation comes through that. So Paul uh, explains in the second major section that the only way to be right with God, to get his righteousness, is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the key term to remember in the second major section is, yeah, thank you, one person, uh, justification. Two people, maybe. You, you should say it louder, though. What is that key term again? Justification, justification which doesn't mean just as if I never sinned. It, it means declared righteous in the sight of God. Uh, very forensic judicial term. Last week, we, we saw Paul sum up what he had said in the first two major sections by showing how two acts by two different men had two different results on two races of people. That was Romans five twelve through 21. Adam brought sin and death and condemnation into the world through his one act of disobedience while Christ brought justification and life into the world through his one act of obedience. What a striking contrast that Paul laid out. And now we're at the point in the epistle where Paul changes the emphasis drastically. I mean, the subject still remains the same. It is the righteousness of God, but the focus is different. And that it is, you know, the righteousness of God that's still going to be the subject. You can tell by the sermon insert, that title of this uh, sermon, sanctification, set apart in God's righteousness. So... The subject is the same, but the focus is different. I mean, he has explained how to get a right relationship with God, how we receive the righteousness of God by grace and through faith in Christ. And now he's going to explain how God's righteousness affects us, impacts us, changes things for us. And that is the doctrine of sanctification. That is the focus of chapters 6 through 8. Now, there are three things that Paul is going to do in these three chapters in this section on sanctification and and by the time that we're done going over it you should know these three things very well for they will make all the difference in the world on how you handle this struggle that we talked about the the the, the struggle with temptation and sin not living up to what we know we sh- should be doing. So the first thing that Paul will do is teach that, that Christians are dead to sin. Dead to sin. In Christ, we are dead to sin. That's the message of chapter 6. The second thing we will teach is that we are dead to the law. That is the message of chapter 7. Very, I'm simplifying it, obviously. We're, we'll spend some time in those chapters, but that's the basic Focus. Dead to sin and then dead to the law. And the third thing that he will teach is that we are alive in the spirit. Yes. And that is the message of chapter 8. Yes. And that, if it, as long as we keep that in mind, it's going to shape how we understand 6, 7, and 8. However, Rather than going, again, as I said, rather than going right into chapter 6 and looking at how we are dead to sin, we're going to spend some time looking at an overview of this doctrine, the doctrine of sanctification. And and we'll do three things today as well. First, we will seek to understand the meaning of the word sanctification. It's another one of those big theological terms, right? We've talked about two of them so far, condemnation and... Justification, we could add to that. We talked about redemption and propitiation, and there's others glorification and reconciliation, and all of that. Um, So, we, we need to understand what this doctrine is, seek to understand it. And second, we'll see that there are various stages to this doctrine of sanctification, it happens in stages. And third, we'll examine the nature of just one of those stages. So, let's jump into the boat and go, or get on the plane and take off. Uh, First, the meaning of sanctification. And you've got four things in in your insert that you can write in. The, The very brief definition of sanctification would be, and this isn't one of the stages, just so that you know. You might want to write, if you are writing a note on this, write it somewhere else, (laughs) like right before that or something. But a very brief definition of sanctification would be something like this. To be set apart for God's possession and for God's use. To be set apart for God's possession and God's use. I was was telling Kia as we were practicing those songs this morning, that first song that we sang a saying was like, uh, Father, you know, use my ransomed life any way you choose. That's sanctification. We've been ransomed and set apart by God and His wonderful forgiveness. Now use my life any way you choose. To be set apart for God's possession and God's use. A more full description would be something like this. Sanctification is that gracious operation of God. You're not going to want to write all this down. It's there for you as I read it. But it's this gracious operation of God involving our responsible participation by which he delivers us as justified sinners from the pollution of sin. He renews our entire nature according to the image. Of himself and enables us to live in a way that is pleasing to him. It's the operation of God. We participate in it, but it's His operation, in a sense. And sanctification is all about God revealing to us how to live godly in a godless world. How we can live godly in a godless world. Now, the word sanctification comes from a Hebrew word and a Greek word. And, and it's many forms and variations, but the Hebrew word is gadosh. You don't have to write it down if you want to. It'd be spelled G-A-L-O-S-H. If you're looking in, in, a, in a concordance where they got Hebrew and Greek words in the back, you could find that, gadosh. And the, and the Greek word that is used is hagiosmos, Use your phonics to spell that out. Hagiasmas, yes, kind of cool sounding word, is Hagiasmas. Yeah, okay. The basic meaning of this Hebrew word Gadosh was was to cut or to separate. Um, and while the basic meaning of the Greek term Hagiasmas is separation or to set apart, so. It take it in as various forms. The verbal form of these words are usually translated this way in your Bibles: to sanctify or consecrate. The, the adjectival form would be holy. Again, the verbal form, to sanctify, consecrate, or you could see it as separate or to set apart. The, the adjectival form is holy. Uh, or sanctified or consecrated if it's used in an adjective as an adjective and the noun form this shouldn't surprise you the word saint comes from this word the word that we see written often in the new testament the word saint sanctification consecration and holiness you'll read all those words in your bibles which just encourage you to be reading through your bibles Again, so there is a positive and negative aspect to this doctrine, sanctification. The positive aspect is being set apart for God's possession and God's use, right? That's the positive thing. We read in the Old Testament, for example, of places, times, um, things, and people all set apart for God's possession and God's use, to be used especially by God for example in Genesis 2 and verse 3 we find the very first use of this word where it says so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy made it sanctified made it consecrated used as an adjective because on it God rested from all his work which he had done in creation now so I make the seventh day a day of rest it's It's to be set apart for people. God didn't need the rest, right? God wasn't worn out by creating. And in fact, Jesus reveals it very clearly that the Sabbath was not made for God. It was made for men. And so God set that seventh day apart, cut it apart from the rest of the week so that people would learn they need rest and they need worship and both can be accomplished on that special day. We read about the tabernacle, the priests, the prophets, etc. being set apart for the Lord's use as well. Here's an example. It comes from incense that was to be used in tabernacle worship. And it was only to be used in tabernacle or temple worship. Not to be used in private settings and homes and that kind of thing. And, uh, and only that incense could be used in, in worship of the Lord. It was set up that way, and we read about it in, in uh, Exodus 30 and verse 37, where it says, And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, and that the Lord gave them that composition, you shall not make for yourselves. <laughs> it shall be for you holy." consecrated, sanctified for the Lord. Hmm. Interesting story as you get to Leviticus chapter 10 and Nadab and Abihu, uh, Aaron's sons who were priests along with him. He was the high priest, but they were priests. And it says in the beginning that they offered strange fire, strange incense to the Lord and the Lord struck them down. He brought fire down from heaven, burned them up. Why? Because they did not use the prescribed incense for worship. He would have done the same thing, no doubt, if they had taken the tabernacle incense and used it in their homes. He wanted to make a point that you shall treat him as holy, as consecrated, as sanctified, and, and the things that he identifies that way, like that incense, you shall treat it that way. And he, he had to come down on moses and aaron or he comes down on aaron because uh, through moses and say you've got to treat the lord holy and it even implies that there was some drinking of alcohol that went on before they offered the strange fire or incense to the lord jeremiah the prophet was told by God that he had been set apart for the Lord's use from before he was conceived in his mother's womb. Jeremiah 1 and verse 5. What a wonderful statement. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I sanctified you. I did holiness to you. You know this, that's the word, and I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. By the way, did you notice it says to the nations and not to the nation? He was set as a set apart as a prophet, cut out from the rest, set up as a prophet to the nations, so that Gentiles would hear the truth about God as well. So the practice of sanctifying things. It, really is a common practice for all of us, even though we may not name it as such. For example, some of you own China dinnerware. We do. I mean, We have China dinnerware that is only used on special occasions, whether that's Thanksgiving or Christmas. We don't use it for common use. We're not reaching into the cabinet where we have our commonware and accidentally pull out China. It's in a special cabinet. It's set apart it's sanctified we don't use it for other occasions I mean my wife will use it for that, that kind of occasion or if she's having a lady's tea at the house she'll pull out the china teacups you know the kind that I can hardly get my finger into the hole you know uh, yeah, it's sanctified dinnerware uh, maybe you have that too uh, maybe you have a, a special coffee cup it's your coffee cup it's your possession for your use. Others do not touch it. And if you saw someone that was staying in your house, like a relative or whatever, and they reach in and they grab your cup, you, oh, no, no, no. You can have any other cup in the you know, mug in the cabinet. You can't have that. That's mine, and it's for my use. It's sanctified. <laughs> yeah. We used to have a soup ladle, ladle which was set apart for specific use at the time we had a cat and this particular soup ladle was used for cleaning out the late litter box <laughs> scooping out the stuff you know and i guarantee you we only used it for that not <laughs> for anything else we didn't use it when we had people over for soup no it was sanctified right it was sanctified set apart and I'm sure, I'm absolutely positive that everyone here has a sanctified item. Your toothbrush. Your toothbrush is your possession for your use. You would not consider sharing it with other people. Not even your spouse and especially not your children. That's yeah. just terrible to think about, after all, I mean, this toothbrush is sanctified, it's consecrated, right? It's your possession to be used for your use only. So regarding the biblical aspect of sanctification, it involves something, uh, it involves something or some time or someone being set apart from that which is impure, unholy, or common. Common. Uh, and, and it's consecrated or set apart for that to that which is pure and holy. And let's say it, special. Special. In, in Ephesians 5, for example, 26 and 27, where Paul is giving some commands uh, to husbands and wives, how they are to treat one another, their responsibilities. We read there... Uh, that it, it says that the Lord sanctifies the church by, the cleanse, by cleansing her with wa- washing of the water of the word so that he might present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she would be holy. There's that word. Sanctified, consecrated, and without blemish. So the Lord... Cleanses his church to make her holy sanctified and that's really the responsibility of the husband in that passage too to watch over his wife that she be sanctified uh, similarly we read in 2nd Timothy chapter 2 and verses 20 and 21 these words it, it Johnny on the spot with those verses I can't get it out before he gets it up Uh, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Probably the idea of that is that some were meant for special use and some for common use. But he's, he's, he's using it as a metaphor to describe uh, the Christian life and, uh, or the church and so he uses the word honorable and dishonorable because that's more fitting for that. And he goes on and he says, therefore if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, sanctified, consecrated, useful, useful, right? Yep. For the master of the house, for, right, for every good work. So the church is set apart. Individual believers are set apart for God's possession to be used as he sees fit to use them. And he does that through every good work that he prepares them to do. (laughs) That's pretty awesome what sanctification is talking about. So we see the sanctification of people involves two things. And the first of them is to be set apart from sin and impurity. And and then setting them apart unto righteousness and holiness, and, and they are those who are consecrated as God's possession and God's use. That's believers, right? The church. That's the meaning. Pretty important word, wouldn't you say? The stages of sanctification. I think the question may be asked: hmm, Exactly when am I sanctified? I mean, I don't really feel sanctified when I want to ram the person who cut me off in traffic. When I call them an idiot, I wouldn't think, man, I'm such a sanctified guy. You know, I I don't feel sanctified at those times. Does that mean that I'm not sanctified? At least at that point? Am I only sanctified when I'm living in righteousness? Feeling sanctified? Well, those questions and others like them are answered by understanding that the scripture speaks of sanctification happening in stages, in development, in a process. So let's see what those stages are. Now we're to or four things here. Number one. Now you can write in one of three different phrases. I'm, I'm just going to use one. Pre-birth sanctification. But you could write down pre-existent sanctification or pre-conversion sanctification. And and the scriptures mention what we would refer to as that in several different passages. By the way, as I go through, and I'm going to give a lot, a lot of verses here, it's not extensive, it's not all of them. I'm giving you a sampling of the verses that would demonstrate this. So pre-conversion, pre-birth, pre-existent, really taking us all the way back before God created anything. Jeremiah 1.5 says, uh, I already read it to you before, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Pre-birth, right? Pre-birth. Before he was even, uh, you know, conceived in the womb. He was already consecrated by God and appointed to be a prophet to the nations. Similarly, in Galatians 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, but when he who had set me apart, there's that same word, sanctified me uh, uh, before I was born, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So similar to what Jeremiah was said of Jeremiah. Well, say I was I was set apart for the work that I'm doing now, long before I was even born. God had a plan for me. First Peter chapter one verses one and two says, "Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Pay attention, elect exiles. And other scriptures tell us that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. These are elect." Uh, disciples, elect believers of the, he says, of the dispersion, uh, it was the Jewish Christians who were spread about the Roman Empire in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, according to his foreknowledge that means pre-existent, Right? foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification, our word, of the Spirit. So in the foreknowledge of God, he was setting these, he chose these people and set them apart and would bring it about in time through sanctification by the Spirit. Under what end? For obedience to Jesus Christ. God's possession, God's use, and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 2 Thessalonians two thirteen says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by, by the Lord, because God chose you, there's that same idea of election, God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. So God chose them to be saved. Right? God chose them to be saved. Before they ever believed, they were already chosen by God to be believers. Pre-birth, pre-conversion. And, and that happened through the sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. So in time, it happens. They became sanctified because God had chosen them ahead of time. Now, one that Joel doesn't have in his text... I'm going to say it's 2 Timothy 1, 8, and 9. He's over there typing so they can get it up there for you. There you go. What a guy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us, that's a chosen, called called us, to a holy calling. Now some of your translations are going to have with a holy calling. But it is not describing uh, God's call as being holy, but it is describing to what we were called. We were called to be holy. Not because of our works, no. But because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus, notice the last part, before the ages began before the ages began, pre-birth, pre-conversion, pre-existent, if you will, sanctification. The second stage in sanctification is positional sanctification, positional. And there are several passages where this aspect of sanctification is found. Now, the basic meaning of positional sanctification Or you could, if you wanted, to, put it down as progressive sanctification. Uh, Now that's going to be the next one. Uh, The basic meaning of positional sanctification is that from the moment that we believe, we're sanctified by the Spirit, we've already seen that, we're set apart because we are forgiven. We're set apart by God for His possession and His use. We're set apart from sin and its consequences. That's why we're not... Um, destined for the wrath of god because we're set apart from it and we are set apart for god and his purposes his use and from that moment on god sees us as perfected because of the imputed righteousness now, these are terms that we've been talking about so you should know what i'm referring to the imputed righteousness of the son of god get, being given to us who believe our sin was imputed to him his righteousness was imputed to us so this stage of sanctification is not, not directly speaking of the same thing about living in a sanctified life as such. Uh, it, it refers to something a little bit different. And, and, and this is the idea that is stressed in a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, where we read to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, consecrated, made holy, if you will, in Christ Jesus, called, there's that same phrase again, called to be what? Saints, there's the same word, uh, root word, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, here's a church, if you've read your Bible and you're familiar with Corinthians, the book 1st 2nd Corinthians, Here's a church which is known for its struggle to live godly. Not only did it struggle with doctrine, they were all messed up on several areas of doctrine that Paul had to correct them in, but they struggled with living a godly life. Um, They were caught up in things like the sin of divisiveness. And uh, sins of sexual immorality and mistreating one another, taking each other to court in front of godless judges. And they were also caught up in the abuse of spiritual gifts, a wonderful thing that God gives his people, spiritual gifts. And they were abusing those gifts. And they were dishonoring the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. You're not even having the Lord's Supper. You're so misusing that special time, he says. So, how in the world could they be sanctified in Christ Jesus? How could they be called saints? Well, it's because of positional sanctification. And, and, and that Paul's uh, uh, speaking of this is, is clear when you get to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. And he, he emphasizes this positional sanctification, makes the difference. He, he, he writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And some people might think, well, if that's the case, no one's going to heaven. No one's going to inherit the kingdom of God, because that's a pretty long list, isn't it? Of course, we're not sexually immoral, but I've gotten drunk before in my life, or I've, you know, I've stolen something from someone, or, you know, I've broken, well, all of those Ten Commandment things, you know, I I mean, I guess, how's anyone going to get in there? And then he says, beautifully, and such were some of you. That's what you were. And what he is talking about is what they were by nature, by characteristic, by habit, by normal life. That's what they were, all those things. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, he's writing to people who are still struggling with those things, even though they were already washed, sanctified, and justified, right? Because he's writing to the church. But it wasn't their, their nature anymore. And it wasn't their characteristic life anymore. It wasn't their normal behavior anymore because they were sanctified. They were cleansed. They were justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God by Jesus Christ. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. The author of Hebrews also refers to the same stage of sanctification in Hebrews 10.10. Beautiful, wonderful verse. And by that will we have been sanctified. Written in the perfect tense. It happened in the past. Still sanctified now. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's once for all is one little Greek word, hapax. Once for all. Not happening again. And then in, in verse 14 of the same chapter, he says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So both verses speak of being sanctified and being perfected once and for all, or for all time, which would have taken place at the time that faith was placed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you put your faith in Christ, you are sanctified for all time. You are perfected for all time. Yes, amen. 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 But the latter of these two verses also refers to the next stage in sanctification, which is the progressive uh, stage of sanctification. So, number three, progressive. Now, once again, Hebrews 10.14 refers to believers as being perfected for all time. That's positional, right? Positional sanctification. And then speaks of those who are being, notice the, the tense, being sanctified in the present, right? Being sanctified. That's progressive. So, by... Use of the term progressing, it should be obvious that we're talking about sanctification, which is continuing in nature, continuing in nature. It it refers to the process, the process of being set apart from sin and unto God for his purposes and use, and that's happening on an ongoing basis. So this stage of sanctification is also found in several verses. Here's a, here's a good one, John seventeen seventeen, The high priestly prayer of Christ for the believers before he was rested in the Garden of Eden. And we read there, Jesus praying to the Father, sanctify them. It's obvious reference to the disciples who were with him, but in the text, Jesus says elsewhere, I do not pray for them alone, but for all of those who will believe through their preaching. Who does that include? Us us. So sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Well, let me tell you, you're not sanctified in truth once for all when you read your Bible once. (laughs) No, sanctified in truth. Your word is truth. You've got to spend time in the Bible. You've got to spend time reading the Bible, studying the Bible, understanding the Bible to be sanctified by the truth. So it is a progressive thing, not a one-time thing. Second Corinthians 7 and verse 1 says, since we have these promises, and that refers back to chapter 6, where in the last part of it, 11 through 14, he's talking about how believers are distinctively different than unbelievers. They have nothing in common, but what believers have is they have a father who will dwell with them, and be their God, and they will be his people, and he will be with them. And so he says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness. Now, some of your translations may say perfecting sanctification, but it's bringing holiness or sanctification to completion in the fear of God. Notice what he says. Let us cleanse ourselves of all defilement, of all sin. That's a process, isn't it? I mean, it's not talking about I get saved and I realize, oh, I got all these sins cleanse myself of it. and Now I've perfected holiness. And I never struggle again. You ever meet anyone like that? No, no, because this stage of sanctification is progressive. First Thessalonians 4.3, very clear that it's progressive. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So he's talking about sexual purity within marriage, acquiring a spouse and living faithfully with that spouse, not like unbelievers who are sleeping with every other person, kind of like in our world today, right? He says, this is your sanctification, and he doesn't mean abstain once, Right? He means keep on abstaining. Keep on living faithfully. Keep loving each other as you should. Honor your spouse and honor the Lord. Don't be living like an unbeliever in in this matter. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 through 15. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Looking for his return, in other words. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As an unbeliever, right? As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Is that progressive? Yes. Because he's talking about girding our minds for action. That's an ongoing thing. Being sober-minded, that's an ongoing thing. Keeping our hope fixed on the right thing, that's an ongoing thing. And being like him in our conduct, well, that's obviously an ongoing thing. It's progressive in nature. The last, the fourth one is prospective sanctification. Prospective sanctification. And this stage of sanctification refers to the time when we will not only be perfected in the eyes of God because of imputed righteousness, but we will be perfected or perfectly sanctified in our practice, in our conduct. It is a time that when we will receive our glorified bodies and be just like our Lord, as John wrote about in 1 John 3, that right now we are the children of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He will appear, we'll be like Him. And that means we will be completely sanctified. And then John goes on to write, because that's true, be holy now. Be living a holy life the best you can until He comes. Because everyone who has this hope purifies himself as He is pure, he writes. It is the time when Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. That's Philippians 3.21. Or this stage refers also to what is written about in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Right? Not partially, completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. He will surely do it. He will bring you to complete sanctification. Isn't our sanctification great? It is. Consider, uh, again, our primary sanctification, that from eternity we're chosen by God to be sanctified or set apart by the Spirit for God's possession and God's use. That's pretty awesome in and of itself. Before God said, let there be light, Genesis 1, verse 3, I believe, he had plans and purposes to use us for his glory. Before there was any stuff, because you know, he created the stuff and then he formed the stuff. Before there was any stuff, God was already thinking of you to be used for his glory. Wow. Consider the other three stages of sanctification. I mean, positional sanctification is our standing, while progressive is our growth in grace, and prospective is our ultimate destiny. Positional is how God sees us and progressive is referring to our conduct and prospective is talking about what we will eventually be. Positional is the result of our union with Christ through faith in Him. Progressive is the result of our relationship with the Holy Spirit who indwells us and changes us from the inside out. And Prospective is a result of God's great transformational power. He can do whatever He wants to do, and He wants to sanctify you entirely, completely. So God has done something wonderful for those who put it, their trust in His Son. I mean, before time began, He chose. He chose that He would set apart people for His possession and His use. And from the moment we placed our faith in Christ Jesus, we were set apart and he sees us as perfected and in our daily living he is actively working in us to set us apart from sin's power and make us more like his son and finally in the coming day we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and we'll actually and practically be just like our savior that's just wonderful okay Three minutes. I can't do it in three minutes, but we'll, we'll run through this last part real quick. The nature of progressive sanctification. Now, what I'm going to share with you, I want to I give you a list of some things to meditate on over the coming weeks that we'll cover in this major section of the letter. Um, Some of them will be clear, some of them not. So we'll just have to address them as we go. And there's going to be other things as well. But I thought I would give you a list of some things to meditate on or think about as we go through this section. They are the characteristics or distinctives of progressive sanctification. Number one, it is primarily a supernatural work of God. What is progressive sanctification? Well, all of sanctification is, but this is talking about where we're living right now, right? This is life now. It's primarily a supernatural work of God. Living godly in a godless world will only happen when we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8.13 is going to tell us. I mean, godly living is a result of the fruit of the Spirit not the deeds of the flesh. Galatians five, nineteen through twenty-three. It talks about that. Number two, it involves our cooperation. Our cooperation, or if you wanted to write participation, that would work as well, our cooperation. And the point is this: all the commands and exhortations in the scriptures would be meaningless if God were simply going to do it for us. Right? You wouldn't need all the commands that are there. The exhortations, you wouldn't, you wouldn't need them either. We must be willing to participate and cooperate with God or we will not see progressive sanctification taking place in our life. It's just that simple. We have to cooperate with God. It's mainly his supernatural work in and through us, but it is our participation that actually kicks it into gear. Number three, it includes a negative and a positive aspect. So negatively, we must put to death the, the deeds of the body, the works of the flesh, and we do that by the Spirit, as I've already mentioned. And positively, we must develop and train this new person in Christ. Second Corinthians, uh, you know, says we are new creatures in Christ. The old has passed, the new has come. Well, that's true, but you know, when we become a new creature in Christ, get a new nature. We start out as little babies, right, infants that don't even know how to walk or talk or do anything. They can't survive on their own, and, and and then they grow and they grow and they grow, and then and you know, and then they grow up to be old people in the Lord over time, over time. So this is you know, progressive. We we have to develop and train. It's like Paul said in in Timothy. He wrote, and he says, body exercise is profitable for a little, but godliness, exercise, godly exercise is profitable for all things, for it bears promise, not only in this life, but the life which is coming. Number four, it impacts every part of us, body, soul, and spirit. I've already read 1 Thessalonians five twenty-three, but I'll read it again. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's, that's perspective sanctification, where we are completely sanctified, but notice we are kept blameless until His coming, and that requires our participation to live godly in a godless world. And then 2 Corinthians 7.1, I've already read as well, but it fits this point. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Let's cleanse ourselves. Let's cleanse ourselves. We have to participate in this. From every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So in First Thessalonians 5... 23, it, 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 Paul refers to us as tripart beings. Body, physical, soul, animated principle of life, and spirit, that which has relationship with God as believers, or a dead spirit if you don't know the Lord. In Second in Corinthians 7, 1, he refers to us as two-part beings, body and uh, soul. Body being the material and the soul or the spirit being immaterial. Is he is he confused? Is he wrong? No. No. Both are true. We are both material and spiritual people and we are three parts. We do have a body and we do have a spirit and if we didn't have a soul we wouldn't be breathing. We wouldn't be doing the bad things we shouldn't do and doing the good things that we should do. Because we'd not be living we didn't have a living soul number five it's a gradual and lengthy process it's not complicated to see this it's a it's not accomplished in one act of surrender as some people have tried to convince others of you know you dedicate your life to the Lord and then you don't ever have a problem with sin and there are some books very popular books that we're teaching that. It's just not true that it happens in one moment where we we really get all the sanctification we need. There are not three easy steps to living godly. It's not that way. It's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment process of surrendering to the Lord and following the leading of the Spirit. And then sixth, it involves several means. Now, this is kind of a long one, You can write it out if you'd like. Several means. Faith in God, right? Faith in God, the Word of God, prayer, and fellowship and worship with other believers. Progressive sanctification requires that, those means. Faith in God. You've got to believe in God. You have to trust in God. I don't mean believe unto forgiveness. I mean, you have to believe in God every day, every moment of your life. And, and you, you need the word of God so desperately because that's the only way you know how to live godly. Prayer, that's how you stay. You talk to God about this stuff. And fellowship and worship with other believers is a necessity as well. We we're not, not designed to be by ourselves, isolated from others. The old phrase, no man is an island. Well, of course, a man is not an island anyway. Uh, but you know, that statement is really the, the, what we're talking about. No one was created to live an isolated life. I can do it all on my own. Only is my Bible and the Holy Spirit and, and I can get out in the wilderness and live that special life. God didn't create you for that. He created you to be in community with other people. Whether that's small or large, doesn't matter. He creates us for community. So, whew, the flight is over. the The, the plane just touch down. We're taxiing over to the jetway. In a moment, you're going to walk through the jet jetway and you go into the terminal and you're going to say, you know, I'm hungry. I think I'll eat before I go home. And you're going to do that. You're going to leave this room and you're going to go over to the side and eat a meal and enjoy some fellowship before you go home. But I have a, a few more, just a few more thoughts before we, we're taxiing. We haven't got to the jetway yet. Okay. just these, this is progressive sanctification that we're talking about our, our living godly in a godless world and I want to just compare it briefly to climbing a mountain uh, and it takes four things it takes number one faith it takes faith I've already mentioned that it takes faith in God well you know if you're climbing a mountain you better believe that you can climb the mountain if you don't believe that you can climb the mountain, don't. It's foolishness, right? It takes faith. I can do it. I'm the little engine that could. I can do it. I can climb that mountain. Well, the soul is progressive. Sanctification requires a belief that God will continue his good work until the process is complete. You'll be thinking Philippians 4, I mean 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he began a good work and you will complete it until the day of Christ. Secondly, it takes effort. I think you, you should know that. Right, maybe you haven't climbed a mountain in that sense, but you probably hiked a trail here in Alaska, and many of them go up, 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 and down, and then up, 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 and then down, and then up, and... And then you're thinking, oh, but it'll be so much easier on the way down. But you're so tired by the time you got to the top that even going down, which has more down than up, you still, it's like, oh, that up is terrible. I'm worn out. It takes effort to climb a mountain, it, it, it involves great difficulty. So, godly living is not for the weak or lazy. I mean, progressive sanctification, it takes effort. That's why you have to train. That's why you have to, you know, uh, work out spiritually. And number three, it takes time. I've already mentioned that before. It just won't happen as quickly as we had hoped. And to climb a mountain, it takes time, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, it does. It depends on the mountain you're climbing. But any mountain, you could climb uh, flat top, and it'll take some time to do that. Now, if you go to Denali... It's really going to take some time. And, and you know, you got to climb up ways, and then you got to go to base camp, back to base camp. And then you go up a little bit further, and you acclimate, and then you got to go down again. And then you got to go up further and acclimate, and then you got to go down again. You got to keep on going up and down, acclimating to the lack of oxygen that is there as you climb up. I mean, it takes time. It takes time. I was thinking of Laren as he shared that information with us from his climb. So I think that's true with progressive sanctification. We we want it to happen quick. But it just doesn't happen as quickly as we want it sometimes, as quickly as we'd hope. That doesn't mean we should give up. It means that we should understand. it. It takes time. And then lastly, it takes a team. It takes a team. It requires staying connected with others. I was thinking of mountain climbing. It's like, often, most often people are climbing with other climbers, right? But every now and then you'll read a story about a solo climber that you know, got to the top of Denali. This year there was a solo climber that died, didn't make it, couldn't get his body out. You might think, well, see, they do it by themselves. No, they don't. You know that solo climber has a team. It's at base camp. And they're staying in constant contact with that base camp. And, and and they do so for encouragement. They do so in case something happens, people can come and rescue them. There's a team. Even though the, the one guy that solo climbs is gonna get all the credit. The team is important and this is true of progressive sanctification. We need the team. By the way, we are the team. We need each other for encouragement and to be rescued at times. We need each other. We're not to climb this mountain on our own. I mean, the Lord is with us, yes. The Holy Spirit lives in us, yes. But God created us to do this as a team. So let's be a team and help one another. All to the glory of God. Oh, Father, we thank you for the doctrine of sanctification. What a beautiful truth. That the believing in the gospel sets us apart as your possession and for your use. It is your gracious operation working in us. Yes, we cooperate, but it's really your work of setting us apart from the penalty and the power and eventually the very presence of sin in our life. We rejoice in in your goodness, to it's this wonderful element of the doctrine of salvation. Thank you for it. And help us, Lord, as we continue in, in weeks ahead to go through this section of the letter to, to the Romans. So that we can understand it and we can live godly in a godless world. Thank you for the food that we're going to eat and the fellowship we'll enjoy there. Fill our hearts with joy as we consider what you've done for us and what you've given to us, not only in salvation, but with one another. Praise your holy name. Amen.